Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 117. I'm Elaine Charles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, geographic machinations abound, Facebook gets spanked, and we get scientific in the scheduling department. We do. Despite intentions, happy talk was a bit tricky in 116. Your latest Apple Care Force was leading the way. But an update on that might see you talking happy. The chances of that are pretty slim. Just where you're wrong, boy. My hitherto poorly iPhone 6 Plus has returned from the tender loving care of the Apple Care team. Are we all sitting down? It's in perfect working order. Without the usually attendant crises, a grief, stress or imminent need for beta blockers. Now, I know it's early, even by my standards, but can I claim this is the first Christmas miracle of 2019? I think we should all definitely make the most of it. We need to, because before anyone had even heard the last show, there was a crisis. It wasn't me. You keep telling yourself that. Mm, I'd almost forgotten that. We published the show live during and after hours. Graham downloaded it. I downloaded it. So did I. It was all working perfectly. Publishing it live meant we thankfully have a screen recording of it all working fine. Because by the next day, the show had vanished from where we had uploaded it. It wasn't me. I heard you the first time you denied any involvement in missing MacBytes Gate. Thanks to all those of you who let us know. We re-uploaded it and we have been keeping an eye on it ever since. We certainly have. And we heard from Paul, because the last show was greeted with some glee in Spain. Paul replied to the announcement mail with a powerful single word. Woohoo! He was clearly pleased with our endeavours in the studio. Good to hear from you, Paul. I'm sure we'll chat soon at one of the upcoming After Hours shows. Paul suggested a later show. Mac bites after midnight, methinks. Brings to mind some of the more delicately named episodes of Mac bites, doesn't it? Like? Uh, ribbed and sensitive. Buzzing in the bedroom, and I'm sure there are many more. Mike's bot-bot for a start. Uh, moving swiftly along. Mm. Graham came to my rescue after the last show. Remember that salvage story I mentioned? I remember, yeah. He kindly informed me it was the Napoli. The minute he said it, I, it all came back to me. It ran aground in 2007, and it all happened only 60 miles from Graham. Armed with that information, I did more research. It was still rumbling on years after the event. And those quad bikes, I recalled, were actually 17 motorbikes and they were the property of BMW. I was spot on about the nappies, though, which worries me slightly. Um, found this little piece of information. It said, after containers from the wreck began washing up at Branscombe, around 200 people went onto the beach to scavenge the flotsam, despite warnings from the police that those failing to notify the receiver of the wreck of good salvage risked fines. Scavenged goods included the 17 BMW R1200RT motorcycles, empty wine casks, nappies, perfume and car parts. After initially tolerating a salvage free-for-all, by the 23rd of January 2017, the police branded the activity of scavengers despicable 
closed the beach and announced that they would use powers not used for a hundred years to force people to return goods they'd salvage without informing the authorities, pointing out that under the Merchant Shipping Act 1995, such actions constituted an offence equivalent to theft. In October 2007, salvagers who had reported their finds to the receiver of the wreck were told they could keep what they'd found. Which makes it sound all very commercial, doesn't it? I think people are potentially forgetting here the environmental disaster that this was. And the legal cases rumbled on for years. Now, if you remember why I was talking about this in the first place, I'm just waiting for the day a drone delivery turns into the same kind of farce. And just in case you think we throw this show together... Surely not. In my research about the Napoli, I find an interesting nugget in Wikipedia. Apparently, an episode of Doctor Who, Series 7, Episode 4, if you're interested, was based on the story of the grounding of the Napoli. So, I headed off to the BBC iPlayer. Handily, they had all episodes since Chris Eccleston was the Doctor, and they were all there for viewing. I found the episode, The Power of Three, and I watched it. And? Couldn't see the immediate parallels myself. It was about an invasion of black cubes. Uh, Just to describe what these cubes look like, think an Amazon fire cube, virtually identical. And these cubes appeared all over the earth and they did nothing for an absolute age. Then they tried killing all humanity with electrical pulses. Now, apparently, it was all solved when Matt Smith's doctor wafted his sonic screwdriver at what looked like a transparent map. It wasn't Doctor Who as I remember it, put it like that. It wasn't all good news for Graham, though, was it? No. He completely disgraced himself. Mm, shocking behaviour, wasn't it? You're not kidding. Now, I know we like new tech toys here at MapBytes headquarters, but there are limits. Graham and I had spent the weekend bemoaning the fact that our beloved good reader had stopped playing ball with OneDrive. Now, Nige made a comment on Twitter that it was about time that Goodreader got an update. And he wasn't wrong. It'd been an age since version 4 was released. And Goodreader themselves had already said many times they were working on a new version. Roll on Monday morning. What's the first thing I do? Now, let's see. Check your phone. Check your phone. Check your phone. Obviously. But of more significance was checking for app updates. What appeared? Only a brand spanking shiny new version of Goodreader. Which was obviously fabulous news. How on earth could Graham get himself into big trouble with that news? Well, I tweeted to let him know. His reply? I actually stopped listening to Backbytes to get this. Trying on my older iPad first, just in case, all seems well, but had to replace the NAS name with my router IP address to access the drive plugged into my router. Bought the extra pack, of course. Graham. 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 Exactly. And I shall quote, just for emphasis, I actually stopped listening to MacBytes to get this. Completely shocking behaviour. I did let him off, though, since it's one of our favourite apps. And a new version is rarer than a lunar eclipse. More on the lesser-spotted Goodreader later. Now, I have a follow-up from uh, the nightmare update of my iMac from the last show. It got worse. I have another machine. It's called Boomer. Shall I share why it's called Boomer, Mike? Why not? Boomer is short for boomerang. Is it ringing any bells yet, Mike? It certainly is. 
Mm. This was the iMac that went off for some tender loving care at AppleCare and returned to be sent back, to be returned, to be sent back, to return, to be sent back. Hence, Boomerang. Anyway, on Boomer, the update automatically updated itself. While we were actually sat in the office discussing something. Now, Maybe not surprising, but it is if automatic updates off. I didn't touch it. You didn't touch it. I certainly didn't touch it. No, even you're not that stupid. No, nobody touched it. It literally just updated itself and then rebooted. Now, when I say rebooted, it never actually sprang back into life. It rebooted at least 20 times before I got really narky and pulled the plug. I necked a fair-sized handful of the contents of an industrial-sized bottle of my horse tranquilizers and sat gently rocking myself for long enough for the horror of it to dissipate. I had not had the chance to plug it back in and even attempt to deal with it before... Another security update arrived for High Sierra. I know, you've got to be kidding me. This one was 10.13.6, security update 2019-001. Back to my wholesale supplier of said horse tranquilizers. No, I didn't do the deed, but a very brave Graham did. And yet again, for the third time in a row, it failed for him. I want to say third time in a row. I mean the third update. This is the third update that has just completely failed. Same issue as all the other updates. Basically, it was stuck. The combo version of the updater worked, but how many muggles would know that? You know the people Apple are deliberately pitching their beautiful bereft of power features apps at? Those people. I actually had no choice but to leave it alone until I'd got at least a clear week to deal with the inevitable fallout of it. Apple update bingo which Mac would randomly install it and die a spectacular death. Watch this space. We heard from the lovely Alistair too, with a cracking take on his own geographic challenges. He says, Hi crew, your story about the geographically challenged tech struck a chord with me. If you think you have it bad, try a third tier country like New Zealand or Ireland. No HomePod, no iTunes TV shows, no TV app on Apple TV. I could go on. But my reason for writing is a geographic tale I think you'll get a kick out of. The year was 2011. I decided I wanted to reread a book my wife had introduced me to 20 years ago. She's a huge Stephen King fan, but I found I liked Dean Koontz a little better. The book I wanted to return to was called Watchers. Off I went to Apple Books. Not available. I went to Amazon US, not available in a Kindle version, but available as a stupidly cheap paperback. No, I want an electronic version. I switched to Amazon UK. There it is. Put it in my cart. Go to the checkout. We can't ship this to you. What? It's electronic. Nope, can't be done. With the book in my cart, I switched to the US store. It's still in my cart. We can't ship this to you. Ah! This was a 24-year-old bestseller which we've already bought once, and I want to give the author more money. I look elsewhere, even for a bootleg copy. Nothing to be found. I begin to think there's no way to get Amazon to ship it to my iPad Kindle app. The darn thing is showing over there in the sidebar. I try once again from the US store. Then the error message catches my eye. Something along the lines of, you must specify a US address. 
My New Zealand address is the default. My sister's address in the UK is an alternate. It's not happy with either of those. But what if I just create an American address? So I did, and the purchase went through, and the book was delivered to the Kindle app on my iPad. How dumb is that? But what address did I create? Well, I figured if I were ever to be called out on it, my only defence would be an obviously fake address. See the attached screen cap? It remains on my account to this day. I still check twice before choosing a shipping address for physical products. Alistair. I'm not surprised you do the double check on the shipping address. The address he's given them? 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. For the uninitiated, that's the White House. <laughs> classic, absolute classic Alistair. The next time someone mentions the genius of AI and tech taking over the world, I'll be reminded of this. Seriously, though, this geographic nonsense just needs to be dealt with once and for all. But thanks for sharing, Alistair. We'll be chuckling about that one for weeks. I thought of you this week after your tales of Apple Care woke. Somebody contacted me via LinkedIn, asked me to do some telephone etiquette training. No idea why. It's not on my LinkedIn profile. I'm an Excel trainer. But the topics included basics of telephone etiquette, dealing with difficult callers, positive tone, sincerity and customer satisfaction. I'm sensing a fabulous opportunity here. I could be a professional difficult caller. I thought you already were. I like to think of it as the ultimate side hustle. And not to get going again, but I'd much rather never be in a position when I need to resort to phone-bound threats to get an acceptable level of customer service. I should contact them, though, shouldn't I? I think you should. Mm, me too. Anyway, I'm starting this next piece with a huge about time. We use Spotify. We have done for years. We love it, especially curated playlists. Compilation albums, also a favourite. We're of that era, really, aren't we? We are, definitely. Now, if you manually create a playlist, you're good. You obviously don't add anything you don't like. But curated playlists are so much quicker to use. You can, of course, take the time to recreate them as personal playlists, but <laughs> who's got that much time on their hands? And then you lose the future updates. So, the problem? Well, you may find songs you don't like in either compilation albums or playlists. And until now, you've just had to skip forward. Something I find particularly annoying with my compilations from 1984. You know why, don't you? It's not the Gumbay Dance Band, is it? No, that was 1981! And they're fab. But back to 1984. No idea? No. For crying out loud, Mike. Even I know Elaine can't abide. The Smiths. Oh yes, were they big in 1984? Sadly, they were massive. What he said. Or as I call it, music to slit your wrists to. I never, ever, ever want to hear anything by either The Smiths or Morrissey. I've even had The Smiths appear in the You Might Like These Recommendations section. I think I know what happened there. So do I. OK, I'll admit it, it was me. I was in the kitchen listening to Spotify on the Echo, and I said, Alexa, play The Smiths. And Spotify haven't stopped recommending them since. You stupid boy. Anyway. 
point of the piece. Spotify have a feature coming that should solve the problem. And save Mike's bacon. And you think Siri is joking? I know he isn't. Back to this feature. Until now, there was no option but to skip forward. But soon, there's going to be a mute this artist feature. Artist. Mm, wide interpretation of the word. Now, once you have, you'll be blissfully unaware part of their dubious repertoire was ever in the playlists or compilations you were listening to. Genius! Can't get here fast enough. For those occasions when your other half thinks it's funny to weight the odds on the predictive recommendations. Hmm. I'm saying nothing. You don't need to. No. Now there's a new tech trend, apparently. One I've thankfully missed. Luxury accessories. Hang on, aren't most Apple accessories luxuries? Given the price, yes. Uh, these in question. A wireless charger. Standard price, $60. A leather-covered, Baluti-branded one, exactly the same item, $720. Wireless in-ear headphones, standard version, now this is pricey enough, $299. Louis Vuitton branded, $995. I mean, seriously, they do cost enough to start with. And why would anyone want to wrap their tech in rather grubby-looking leather? Surely it interferes with the functionality, particularly of a charger. And to be honest, those headphones are just plain ugly. It's actually as bad as friends of ours who don't turn a hair when they see a handbag priced anywhere between £700 and £2,000 and then question why I've bought an iPad for £1,000 and then usually follow it up with questioning how I can afford it. Let me explain. Simple maths. Because my handbag cost me less than £10 from a local store. And actually, it looks better than any of those ludicrously overpriced monstrosities anyway. Please let this be a trend that dies a sad death ASAP. Having said that, there may actually be no escape from this one. I found myself interested in a device from 101 Design. It's sort of an Apple TV shaped thing to allow simple sharing of Wi-Fi access. There's no software to install, and it's similar in concept to the iOS feature that allows one device to share Wi-Fi details with another device via NFC. But it's better because you don't have to have the first device already connected to the network, and Android devices can play along. So I'm thinking that's handy, particularly in a public space. Two options available, wood or leather covered. Should I be concerned about this mania with leather-covered accessories right now? Sounds a bit kinky to me. Yes. Anyway, in much better news, a new version of a favourite app. Cause for unbridled joy, surely. Not when it goes A over T, as we say here in good old Blighty. And this one went more than A over T. The app in question is GoodNotes. The new version is version 5 for iOS. It promised itself to be free for purchasers of version 4 who bought version 4 at full price. Trouble was, that didn't work for everyone, judging by the reviews. Some were charged full price, others were charged random amounts, and that was all on release day. There has been some clarity since then. It was Apple's fault. 
there is a complete my bundle option that's clickable. Now, if you use that, you won't get charged if you did pay full price for the previous version. But if you use the button to buy GoodNotes 5 on the same page, you will get charged. The developers had to add copious instructions of exactly where to tab. Now, of more concern to me, that, that was bad enough, obviously, but of more concern to me was the feature set. New version means new features, surely. Apparently so, according to the email I received announcing the new version. There's an entirely new document library structure. There's a new pen system and a new editing system. In fact, I can now actually tell you that I was in the top secret, don't tell a living soul you're in it, beta programme. And in beta, it was shaping up nicely. But I was as surprised as the next person, if not more so, when they suddenly released it. Because, in my opinion, it wasn't ready. It was in beta. But hey, they must have thought so. And it was out now. So I read on. The trouble was, as I read on, I came across a section right at the bottom. So I'm reading this email. It was below the sign off. Seriously, if the mail was an eye chart, it would have been the bit near the printed in Hong Kong line. The heading of this was not yet implemented. Let me translate for you. You mean missing. It was the list of all that was missing. There were vague promises of adding it back at some point. Sounds like eye work. I continue. Compatibility with the Mac version. Whoa! Say again. Compatibility with the Mac version. So, if I upgrade... I lose the ability to use the desktop version I've already paid for. Short answer to that? Yes. They really know how to push your buttons, don't they? It wasn't just me. Let's just say the proverbial hit the fan big style. At the last count, every review I found was a one star, and most of those were complaining because they couldn't give it no stars. There were many and varied complaints. A laggy pencil, the new file system, the new editing mode, you name it, and someone didn't like it. I actually had less of an issue with the features that were actually there and a much bigger problem with the ones that weren't. I blame Apple for this seemingly new trend of developers ripping out features from a new version of an existing app and then shipping what is, in effect, a shadow of its former self. I work. Final cut. There's a fine line between simplification and gutting the life out of an app. I wish we could just get back to improving apps and leaving all this stupidness behind. Then I wouldn't have to rant on about it endlessly. Well, that sounds like a grand plan. It wouldn't leave you much to do on the show now, would it? Moving on. I read this story next and thought, seriously? Apple have hired a battery expert from Samsung. The grandly titled role of Global Head of Battery Developments. Hmm, Samsung batteries. Weren't they exploding only a few months ago? I wasn't as horrified until you reminded me of that. Maybe Apple are going into the pyrotechnics business. Only time will tell if this is as good a hire as Browit was for the retail side of the business. <laughs> I fear it might be. Seems I'm not the only one to complain about Apple short cables either. Someone I've never heard of, but he's rich, so it made the news. Anand... Mahindra, CEO of the Mahindra Group, vehemently complaining about Apple changing to USB-C for new iPads and laptops. His problem? Buying more cables. 
carrying more cables and dongles. Pretty much the same complaint Brian May of Queen fame had last year. And you've been moaning about forever. That's the one. To be honest, at least I found a fantastic collection of cost-effective alternatives that worked out to be £1.80 each. Uh, there's five in the packet, two three-foot, two six-foot, one ten-foot. Braided, still going strong, absolutely perfect. So much so, the original Apple cables are back in the boxes. Never use the things. Next, a follow-up from my nightmare with AppleCare's pricing roulette. News of a design flaw in the new MacBook Pro. Stage light fault, also known as stage light gate. And what it is, is very uneven lighting on the lower edge of the screen. Um, I've got a link that I'll put in the show notes so you can see the, the photo. It actually reminded me of how some older Kindle models used to look. It's very uneven backlighting along the same lower edge. Technically, though, it's an easy fix. The issue is a flaw in a cable. The thin cable linking the board to the panel. The thinnest cable ever. Yes, and that's the problem. It's a $6 cable, but it can't be fixed. Meaning a $600 repair is needed. Said $6 cable is so thin that just in normal use of opening and closing the lid of your laptop, it snaps. It looks impossible for it not to wear out. The big question is, is that going to happen before or after your Apple Care expires? It actually sounded to me similar to the plastic clip fault on the iMac of a few years back. There was nothing actually wrong with the panel, but it needed an expensive repair for what actually turned out to be, and there were videos on YouTube so you could see it, a cheap plastic clip. You could actually, because when it happened to your screen, it started to go dark and eventually you had a completely 50% black thing on your screen with a, with a straight line running right down the middle. Um, as I say, it can be fixed with a piece of cardboard. You use the cardboard to force the connector on the back of the panel to connect. It was bad news for those suffering the fault with the iMac and is also even worse news for those with a laptop, which may or may not be all right right now and may or may not happen before your Apple Care runs out. Can I also point out that choosing to build something like this is probably the least eco-friendly thing a company could do? And you know how Apple love to claim how green they are. Not cool, Apple. Not cool at all. No, not cool, Apple. Not cool. But uh, Facebook have been naughty again, haven't they? Yes, paying kids for access to their data and using an Apple programme to do it. Apple took exception and shut down their access to said program. Upshot of which is Facebook developers lost all access to developer versions of Facebook apps. Now, you know it's a big tech story when the BBC get round to covering it. Wasn't even just Facebook. They did the same to Google. Now, while we're all rolling around the floor laughing at the schadenfreude of it all, just imagine if Apple weren't quite so scrupulous in wielding that kind of power. How scary is that? Mm, all I can say is, you better be careful not to upset Timmy boy. I'm saying nothing. In other news, hell has frozen over. Microsoft Office 365 arrived in the App Store, 24th of January, a little later than predicted at WWDC 2018, where late 2018 was mentioned. But it's finally arrived. Good news? Big deal? Depends. 
If you've already got a subscription, you might be feeling annoyed that you miss out on the simplicity of installing from the Mac App Store. But fear not, you don't. In fact, you're in a better position than you think. And if you're in the market for Office 365, the Mac App Store might not be the best way to go for purchasing it. It's more expensive to buy it from the Mac App Store, a lot more. You've got three options listed in the in-app purchases. Office 365 Home, $79.99. Office 365 Personal, $59.99. And Office 365 Solo, £112.99. An option I'd never heard of. Turned out to be for the Japanese market. Still never heard of it, though. Now, we pay $49.99 a year, which is a £30 saving. How? Amazon, of course. There's always Christmas and Black Friday deals, and they always have a deal on Office. You buy a box, it contains a redemption code, you log into the Office portal, follow the instructions, and you're done. And it adds a year's subscription to your account. Now, as I said, it doesn't mean that you can't have the best of both worlds. Once you've got an active Office 365 subscription, you can download all the Mac App Store versions and use them in exactly the same way as if you'd purchased them via an in-app purchase in the Mac App Store. Having said that, there's, it's background information, this, isn't it? But it's very important, as you well know, Mike. I do, indeed. Versions are more important than ever. You need to know and really understand what you're buying. I don't think they do a great job of informing you of that, but we will. Microsoft still offer a standard Office license without a subscription. It might sound great, but you do miss out a lot. With a subscription version, you get multiple installs, as many as you like, with six rolling activations. You get the mobile versions of the app included. You can have multiple users for a total of six per home account. You get access to six terabytes of online OneDrive space, continual updates and 60 Skype world minutes. Now, existing subscription account and licensed versions are already very different. And now, of course, we've got a new differentiator, support for the Mac App Store installed version. I actually recently wrote a piece about Office 365 and included all of those points that you made about what you get. Um, my key takeaway from the piece was don't buy the standalone non-Office 365 version. And the reason I said that is because it's actually out of date. The carrot that Microsoft dangle to get you to buy a subscription is the monthly updates. Sometimes it's just bug fixes, but often there are new features. To give you a few examples, new functions in Excel, such as text join and concat. And the icons in all the Office apps. Do you remember you used them last week? I did. I was struggling to find an icon, always in a rush as usual, in Keynote, because although they've added shapes beyond the absolute basics, which was all it had for years and years in Keynote, it doesn't have something that I don't know about you, but I think is incredibly useful and obvious, which is a file icon, just like a piece of paper with a folded down corner. And I'm sat there cursing, saying I'll have to go and, and draw it. And I just haven't got time. You know, I think I was going live in 10 minutes and, that, and I decided to change the slide. You know, like rule one, don't do that. And, and you said there's one in PowerPoint. I used it last week. 
So I cranked PowerPoint up. There was the icon. I got it onto a sliding PowerPoint, copied it, pasted it into Keynote and carried on. So that is actually an incredibly useful thing that I didn't realise you didn't get in 2019 no, it is scary there's also new types of charts there is um, a small feature but a very useful feature the ability to deselect cells using the control key in excel there's an updated look and feel to the ribbon there's the powerpoint translator the thing that we demoed in after hours a few weeks ago so that means that when it was released in September 2018, it was actually missing six months of features that Office 365 subscribers were enjoying. And most significantly in this context, you can't use a standalone license in the versions provided in the Mac App Store. So one, you can save a ton of money. You can actually use the things. So you can save a ton of money over the prices in the Mac App Store. And you can use those versions in the Mac App Store in an emergency. I don't know about you. I tend to install Office and then leave it alone, do the updates. I do. Yeah. But I'm thinking we were away and there was an app that I tried to run and it wasn't installed, you know, new Mac and all that. If I'm away it would, and, and I only wanted, say, Excel, I only actually have to download Excel. If you think about the way that Microsoft have you finding it and installing it, you've got to download the lot. So unlimited bandwidth, mm. it would take you. Up. So it's more convenient from the App Store. But if you've already got an account, you don't have to worry. You can use those versions. So let's move on and let's look at the next instalment of Beneath the Surface. And at the end of the last show, I said that there were two apps that I take for granted on the Mac, but there's actually three. Just three. Lightweight. These are apps that I use many times each day, but if they weren't there, I'd miss them. First one is Typinator. Typinator is an alternative to Text Expander. We've used it at MacPatch HQ for many years. Now, Typinator doesn't have a Windows version. I did consider Text Expander, which is available for Windows. The main benefit of that would have been that all my snippets and content items would have been available on both platforms. But as I don't use it on the Mac, there was no point. Plus, it's a $40 a year subscription. So I found an alternative which was called Autotext, and it does the same thing for half the price and no subscription. Now, it works in exactly the same way. You store snippets of text, and you can insert those text snippets into any app by assigning a keyboard shortcut to it. In fact, Jitbit, the company that makes it, say Autotext is text expander for Windows. On their website, they actually pay a hat tip to Text Expander. They say originally Text Expander was a tool for Mac OS X that expands text when a user types a short acronym. And Autotext can even import your existing Text Expander snippets. So that's one uh, tool that I bought. The second piece of software is Clipmate. And that is a clipboard extender, which is absolutely essential for me. The built-in clipboard can only store one item. So when you cut or you copy, what was in the clipboard is deleted and overwritten. And also when you switch off the computer, the clipboard is emptied. So the clipboard extender extends the functionality of the clipboard. That's something that I really miss at work because I forget that I haven't got a clipboard extender installed. And I end up overwriting what's in the clipboard. 
when I know I'm going to copy and paste multiple times, I actually open up a notepad and paste stuff in there and leave it in there, which isn't ideal. So could do with a clipboard extender at work. But on the Mac, I use Alfred and Alfred can store up to three months worth of copied items. I know that's not Alfred's main feature. It's a it's an app launcher, but it does have um, a, a clipboard history. It's part of the power pack, which is a, a paid for add on. And those items are, are also retained when the Mac is shut down. To insert an item from Alfred's clipboard history, you press Command Option C. That displays a list and you select the one that you want to insert. Now, there's no Alfred for Windows, unfortunately, so I bought this tool called Clipmate, which we used to use on Windows. Now, if you go and have a look at their website, don't be fooled by the 1990s looking site. It was it was one of those 1990 called and wanted his website back moments, I think. Do you know, every time I look at Windows software, there are so many sites. I mean, I haven't used Windows as a primary platform for 12 years. No, 13 years this year. And I look at some of the websites and I think, yeah, that's what it looked like back then as well. And they just, <laughs> they just they don't bother, do like. they? No, no. But Clipmate, it is. It's an awesome piece of software. It can hold thousands of clips. You can encrypt sensitive information like credit card numbers. Um, and it's all for a, a one-off payment of $35. We've mentioned now, it before in relation to the Mac that there's nothing, anything like as good. Apart from that one that broke, do you remember? And they wanted me to send them the data. <laughs> like do, I'm going yes. to send you my clipboard history data. <laughs> That's not happening. So I uninstalled it. One thing it does have, um, Clipmate, is something called Power Paste, which was very useful. I think you've used it a lot more than me. Yes. It's, it took me a bit of time to get my head around it. Well, you've just made the point about copying multiple items and then pasting them into Notepad so you can go back and use them later. Um, if you've got information somewhere and you need to transfer it, the, the best example is into a form. So you're filling a form in. Um, you can have the information. You can copy, 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 and then go into Clipmate and choose whether to paste down or paste up. And once you've toggled the option on, you go to where you're pasting it. And when you paste the first item, move to the second area, you paste the second and it pastes up or down the list of clips. It is. It's amazing. The other thing you didn't mention that I remember finding very useful is instead of it just being one long almighty history, you do have the option to have groups of, of items too. And if you link the groups in with the power paste, it becomes a different tool. It's just amazing. I wish there so was something comparable on the Mac. Somebody out there in Macland, some Mac developer, there's a gap in the market. I've been saying that for 13 for years. And, and every time yeah. a new one comes out and says, hey, I'm a clipboard extender, I'm like, come to mummy, let me try you. Good grief, this is awful. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> one day it will happen. One day, yes. Anyway, the third can't live without piece of software is a text editor. Yes, I know Windows comes with Notepad. It's fine as a basic text editor, but I needed something a little better. So I installed Notepad++. I use it at work and it's free. And is there a reason you didn't install Sublime Text? Uh, there is. I don't have a license for it for Windows. The license you have is cross-platform. It covers both. Oh, OK. Well, in that case, I'll install it. You know what they say? A boy, you can never have too many text editors. <laughs> 
like a girl can never have too many, what is it, browsers? I'm so glad was... you didn't say pairs of shoes and handbags. Or I would have had to have spanked you. <laughs> really? Back to the letter. Anyway, that's it for this week's Beneath the Surface. Now, back to the great calendar move of 2018. Part four, no less. But on the upside, the deed is done, and we're basking in the tech glory of it all. Not satisfied with replicating just what we had, our intrepid former selves set about improving the system. Madness. Complete madness. Let's remind ourselves of one of the main drivers for this seemingly thankless project. To reduce the number of calendars. Over the years, the number of calendars grew exponentially. We all start with one personal calendar and one work calendar. Do you remember that? I remember that. Yes. I started like that. But when we started this transfer, I counted. And I started the transfer with 35 calendars. 31 personal calendars and four that were shared with Mike. Or actually, to be precise, shared from Mike. I ended with 18 calendars. 11 personal and 7 shared. So really, almost half the number of calendars that I had. Now, having so many, it was mainly down to the way iCloud calendars work with colours. A new colour requirement for appointments meant you needed to create a new calendar. So I think we'll call that one a success, won't we? I think that was a great success. Yes, yes. about half. Next thing, speed of adding appointments. Um, manual, manually added appointments obviously take a similar amount of time, no matter what system you use. Most of my appointments come from webinar booking systems, though. And with iCloud calendars, it was, it was quite long winded. You needed to do the registration and then download an ICS file, locate the ICS file you've just downloaded in your downloads folder, double click it, which will open calendar or BusyCal. Then you need to configure the details. And then finally, you click to add it to the calendar. Which is fine if there's one appointment. But if you're processing upwards of 20 in a go, there's two hours gone. Now, with Google Calendar, you register for the webinar. You click the Google Calendar option. That's it. So I reckon I can probably save in a week three to four hours just doing that one job. Uh, in terms of speed, there's also the speed of working in general as well. I don't know if you've turned it on, but Google... Most of their apps in a browser, they have keyboard shortcuts, but they're not active by default, but they can be turned on. Now, I've turned them on. I'm doubting you would. If I have, I don't use them. That's what I figured. <clears throat> but it does give you fast keyboard centric email to appointment processing. And those shortcuts can be replicated in many other apps. So particularly Postbox and Spark, they both have options to use the same shortcut keys as you would use in a browser. I find that a benefit. Now, obviously, um, when you're using it in a browser, you're using the same shortcut keys in every browser. For me, the speed improvements actually accessing my calendars because I can access the calendars via a browser at work without Apple's two-factor authentication going wrong. The fact that I'm already logged into Chrome makes it so seamless to access any Google service and Apple just make it too difficult. The other benefit is the whole thing is platform independent, not just Mac and Windows, but 
obviously iPhone, iPad, Android, browser, and the access is more equal. You know, like we've said, you get great functionality on a Mac with certain things, but the iOS one's a bit shonky. And on other things, you've got great versions on iOS and the Mac one's a bit shonky. With this, there just seems to be more parity across the systems. Uh, there's, the, there's the odd thing you can't do, but not much. So I actually like that. I think that, again, it's, it's a time saver, that. Then there was the inbox calendar. I know, you're wondering. Well, despite the remit to reduce the number of individual calendars, I added one. Now, it was an idea I'd had to track newly added appointments because on any calendaring system, one calendar needs to be the default. And I'd got that set to the one that I use the most. But some appointments need triaging before they're finalised. And when you're dealing with so many appointments in one go, it's difficult to find the specific appointment you're trying to edit among the number of calendars and appointments that I'd got. So I created this inbox calendar and I used that as the default. So all my appointments were automatically added. And the, the actual name of it is underscore underscore inbox. The double underscore is to keep it at the top of the alphabetically sorted calendar list. Now, I specified a unique colour and the calendar is obviously filterable. So it's easy to identify and process the appointments that you've added. And for me, that processing is I tend to change the name. I add a prefix and that way it enables me to do quick searches and sorts when I'm in a list view. I also need to add URLs for online events. It, to the correct field, I don't, you, you must have noticed this, Mike, how many webinar services put the URL in the location field? Plenty. Yeah. Can I tell them that that's not a good idea? Because when you tap it, it opens Google Maps. And guess what? <laughs> it can't find the webinar room, strangely enough. So I always make sure that that field is empty unless it is a physical appointment in which case i do put the google maps reference in but where i put the url in BusyCal, there was a dedicated url field wasn't there there still is yes but BusyCal basically doesn't work with a lot of what i do now so i tend to put the url in a common field where i know every calendar app that i could possibly want to work with will find it so it goes at the top of the notes i think we use our calendar in a very proactive way because when we're going to social events uh, dinners and etc we add our menu selection in there and how many times has that saved our bacon many because we do go to a lot of them and you think what did i order for this one and you get there and you think did i really order that but you know you can actually say there's my order that was what i put in so that is actually really really handy i do as i say add the addresses where they're appropriate and the reason that i bother because i've never done this in years the reason i bother now is it gives me one tap access to maps and we do use that all the time don't we mm. it's more useful than, than you would imagine, because you might think to yourself, well, I can just open the maps and then type it in. But we were out the other day and I said, oh, do you want me to get the map out? And you said, yes. And we needed to do it pretty swiftly, didn't we? The motorway was about to fork. One way was about to cost us six quid. The other way wasn't. So as I got the maps up, I was able to not open the maps up. I opened the calendar up, tapped on the appointment, tapped on the address. It instantly opened the maps and I was greeted with this big red blocked road. So I said, quick, 
take the left one as <laughs> you went into the right. But, you know, if I'd have to have typed that in, we'd have been stuck in traffic. So it is worth doing that. And that inbox system's working fantastically well. Another thing is integrated conferencing. This was a big one and a surprise. Obviously, iCloud calendars are completely bereft of integrated conferencing, but Google definitely aren't. Previously, there was Google Hangouts. I don't know about you, got a bit confused between Hangouts and Hangouts on Air and what died and what didn't. Don't ask me. Yes. Well, Google Hangouts themselves have now been, it was Hangouts on Air that, that died, but Google Hangouts themselves have now been retired in favour of Hangouts Chat and Hangouts Meet. And Hangouts Meet are integrated with your calendars. You literally just click the option to add conferencing and you're done. It creates a virtual meeting space with audio and video. It even provides a dial-in number, which makes GoToMeeting and Zoom redundant for small meetings. I mean, I, I wouldn't try using it for something like 100 attendees, but I reckon up to sort of 15 or 20, it could probably cope, couldn't it? It could. We'll have to try that just to be sure. But, you know, that's a value because it could save you over £100 a year at a minimum. Some of those services are £100 a month. But, yeah, that is good to start with. There's also an iOS app available for Hangouts Meet. And we've tried these things. They're amazing. So, one I really like. Then there's tight integration with Google Drive. You can save attachments straight to Google Drive from Gmail. You can send a file from Google Drive as an attachment or a Google Drive link. And there's a better sharing experience with the Shared With Me, which I think we'll talk about in a future show. Uh, we use the commenting on the documents. We've used Slack integration. So there's a lot to be said for the Google Drive integration, isn't there? There is, and I use it as well. I use it for attachments for events as an example is pdf tickets so if you book on an event sometimes they will send you pdf tickets save the uh the pdf from your email and then you can attach the pdf directly to the calendar appointment yep i'm liking that one then another thing that i tried i wasn't aware of it on, until i actually you know had some google calendars there but there's a, a thing called free time slots you can create a block of time. So you create one block. And then within that, you can say, these are the times I'm available for appointments. So your one block of time is broken up into time slots. Now, the people booking time slots with you, you don't need to do anything. You just put these time slots out. You tell people they go to the page and they can book a time slot with you. They do need a Google account for that to work. But I thought it, it, was, it was handy. It, it was not fully featured, but it was handy. But it proved a bit limiting for you, though, didn't it? It did, yeah. Last year, last year, I added a booking system to my website to help reduce the admin and to simplify the process of people wanting to book me to deliver training. The original process I had was an email comes in with a request for date. So something like, can you run a pivot table session in February? I look at my calendar to see when I'm free and I reply with, uh, three or four dates and time slots. So a date and time gets agreed, and then I manually create a new event in my calendar. So I put in the session title, the company name, the person that wants me to, to do the training, the date, the start, and the end time. And then I add the booking to an Excel spreadsheet twice. Once in the bookings tab, and once in the availability tab. 
and that's the availability tab is where I mark the date as unavailable. If the training then gets rescheduled or cancelled, I have to manually update Excel and manually update the calendar. So no wonder mistakes were made. I did double book myself on a couple of occasions. So what I've done is I've built this booking system where now a customer who wants to book my time for me to deliver training for them goes to a page on my website. The page displays a list of dates and times that I'm free and they are pulled in automatically from a dedicated calendar hosted on Google. The customer chooses a date and time, fills in a form with their details and click submit. The calendar is updated automatically once I have approved that request. The spreadsheet is updated automatically and any changes or cancellations, the calendar and the spreadsheet are updated automatically. So it's really, really cut down on my admin. This wouldn't have been possible without creating a dedicated calendar on Google because the booking tool doesn't integrate with any other calendars. So this this calendar, I've called it the availability calendar, and I share it with you as a read-only calendar. And that way you can see what training I'm delivering and when. And ultimately, it helps us to plan our evenings, which is when most of my training takes place. Like we ever do anything but geek out. Exactly. Then there's the Google Apps. Now, the theme here is embrace the Google. The Google Calendar Apps, or browser-based access to the calendar, give you bright, bold colours. And it does all the iOS calendar apps can do. And it doesn't preclude using any other calendar app for a specific job. Now, it also allows you to specify default apps on iOS, which I sincerely wish Apple would do. Google allows you to set the default apps to open specific data types. So you go into the preferences and you can choose between when you tap on the um, map address that I was talking about, you can choose whether it opens in Google Maps or Apple Maps. You can choose whether URLs open in Chrome or Safari and whether sending mails open in Gmail or Mail. It seems such a small thing, and yet Apple, how many years on are we? 11 years on, 12 years on for iPhones? Not there. Could really, really do with that. That would be amazing. There's also something called Google Tasks, which with one click turns an email into a task. It's deliberately separate from the main task management for me. I would put my main tasks somewhere else. I deliberately keep this separate. It's it's more primitive. You can have multiple lists for different task types, but it's not omnifocus. It's not Todoist. But what it does do is it allows me to keep my inbox clear because each item adds links to the original mail. So as I, you're basically converting an email that comes into your inbox into an action in, in your task list, which means you can shift the mail, but when you come to do the tasks, one click and you can refer back to the mail, which is fantastic. There's also reminders and the reminders are go in the calendar. Don't know if you remember, but when we were testing this and it was a good few months ago now, I couldn't get the reminders sorted. Some some reminded me and some didn't. Do you remember? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it just stopped. It just started working. So I can only assume everything was having a moment. There's also Google Keep, which has I use it for fast collection of notes from websites or, or mail. Now, 
I've talked about the mail, the calendars, the email, the tasks, the reminders, Google Keep. There's a lot of moving parts, but it's well worth investigating because you can use all the component parts to craft yourself a system that works for you. Talking of which, in Gmail, Gmail has a sidebar. It's a simple dual pane view. It puts a strip on the right hand side of the browser window when you're working in Gmail. Now, obviously, because of that, it'll work in any browser. It's completely browser independent. It's coming from Google. I choose to show either my calendar or my tasks in it. You've got little icons that represent your calendar tasks and keep. And I found it so useful. I thought, I wish I could open two. Now, I've just changed my main browser to Firefox and I've been testing out stuff from Mozilla. And this uh, project called Side View which in effect gives you three columns in a browser. Well, it does if you're using this dual pane from Google. So I can have my mail, a calendar strip and Google Keep, or I can have my mail, a calendar strip and my tasks listed, which is just fantastic. It gives you just enough information. You know, you, obviously, if you wanted to see multiple days, you gonna have to drill down into your calendar, but just enough to just move forward three days and say, yes, I can do that time without having to click around and find other pages and other stuff like that. I'm actually thinking here, there's a disadvantage as well, isn't there, with, with the stuff we used to use. Apple's oversimplification of apps. When I first switched to a Mac, the simplification actually helped. Back then, there were the three apps. There was Mail, Calendar and Address Book. Well, actually, it was iCal, wasn't it? And at first, my first thought was separate apps. I'm scared. I might lose something. You know, I might have to have them all open or whatever. But coming from a version of Outlook that must be now at least 15, 16 years old, it was actually a relief. You don't really have your address book open much. And I did separate the calendar from the mail. But now that just feels fragmented. It's a disjointed workflow and it slows me down. It's more important to have a simple, fast, friction free workflow now than back then, because we're all handling much more than we were back then. And the Google system I've created does provide that seamless, frictionless workflow. It's also very flexible to any changes that I might make to improve it. And that would happen as I use the system and think, eh, if it did that, oh, I could just do this. And I do. I constantly tweak to save time and simplify the whole thing. Having said that, there is an app called Mailplane. And it's a Mac app, which is a wrapper for Google Gmail, Calendar and contact services. It provides a few extra bells and whistles that you wouldn't get in a browser. And the most used for me is a clipper to clip mail straight to DevonThink Pro Office. Finally, the other thing that, that has changed with this system is we have a calendar in Zenkit. Now, Zenkit's a system we've used to manage the show for a while. Zenkit has calendar integration, but it requires Google Calendar. It doesn't work with iCloud calendars. It's a brilliant system, but I came across a major problem. It only seemed to update one way. Changes that you made in Zenkit rippled through all your other calendar clients, but changes made in BusyCal or Calendar didn't update at the Google end. Well, that fixed itself when I started working in a browser and it's fine in Mailplane with Google Calendar. It must be that those services are working directly with the Google Calendar and through the API, there's some problem with it. So now I've got access in the Google iOS apps, and the changes are absolutely instant. I was prepared to wait a couple of seconds, but it's instant. 
Um, my only concern is that I have the best, fastest, frictionless workflow. I'm not married to any application, system or service. That way, madness lies, as we well know. That leads us to another improvement. Can I just say, iCloud calendar sharing is diabolical. There's just a nightmare of trying to share a URL that changes randomly. This is true. You only discovered it, actually. It was you that said to me, what have you done with the Mapbox calendar? And um, we discovered when Mike lost access to it that what had happened was the URL he used was not the URL anymore. How is that useful in any way, shape or form? Then, second problem, there's no way to embed an iCloud calendar in a web page. So, we're done with its bad behaviour. We have created a new calendar on Google for your sharing pleasure. You'll find it at markbytes.co.uk embedded on both the calendar page and the after hours page. You can optionally subscribe, just click the Google button, or you can copy and paste the link provided into your calendar app of choice and subscribe. It's going to have all the dates of the live shows, including the after hours, the MapBytes lives and the MapBytes learning things. So is that one working for you now, dear? It is. Good, good. So moving forward. Well, changing the calendar system made me question everything. I started to ask how I could improve the system, better apps, better services, better workflows. And I made more changes in 2018 than the previous five years combined to all my systems. Yeah, me too, especially the booking system that I built. So I think what we'll do is we'll share some of those improvements in upcoming shows. So all was well with the great calendar move of 2018 and then disaster struck. The bin calendar. Bit of a story with that one, isn't there? There is. Years ago, I recommended mum have a calendar of her own. The problem was the MacBytes mum was stubborn in the extreme. She assured me she didn't need one. And then the bins began multiplying. Seriously, what's what we like here with bins? It started with one. When we moved in, we started with one bin bag suspended in a wire cage. Then a large wheelie bin arrived. Still fairly simple at that stage. Followed by another large wheelie bin, a huge plastic box for recycling and a third large wheelie bin. Within weeks, a fourth large wheelie bin had arrived. We were contemplating an extension for the, just for the bins at that stage, weren't we? The cherry on the top was a small plastic box for using on a kitchen unit top for food rubbish. More on that beauty later. I said the small thing was unhygienic, but I was only basing that on logic. I don't really claim to be an expert in anything culinary. Understatement. So, with four large wheelie bins, a huge black box and the kitchen thing, Mum gave in. I set about creating a printed calendar for her, replete with all the bin collections on it, colour-coded. How difficult could it be? Well, five separate calendars later, I can tell you, more complicated than it should have been. To have the colour of each bin on the calendar, each one needed a separate calendar. Now, since the MacBytes mum didn't use her calendar app for anything else, there was no problem overloading it with the magically multiplying bin calendars. I duly printed her the calendar and she was happy. In fact, she wouldn't be parted from her calendar and started handwriting much more on it as time went on. Now back to that small kitchen thing. I said it wasn't hygienic and I wasn't wrong. Thankfully, mum had the wisdom to be at least cautious with it 
for Reed, it wasn't in the kitchen. Can I just ensure that you're all aware that the usual MacBytes warning about eating during the show applies? Just give you time to put your food down. It was a warm summer. Very warm. As you discovered for yourself when you made the mistake of attempting to deposit the dregs of your breakfast in the recycling bin. I did. It was alive. <laughs> the MacBytes dad had got there first. I, I dread to think how far in hand. And deposited the remains of a ham sandwich in it. Maggots breed fast, don't they? So, off to Google I headed. Don't ever Google for ways to clean an infested bin. It was weeks before I could think of eating pretty much anything. I spent hours mixing a concoction of boiling water, bleach, vinegar and bicarb. It would have knocked a donkey out at 50 yards. Yeah, the dog was fascinated, though. He was grounded for the duration, marooned in the house. As I recall it, foaming at the mouth, trying to get outside and get involved. Now, at this point, armpit deep in the noxious brew, I had another thought. I wasn't far behind you. Quite. If the outside bin was that bad, what state was the small kitchen thing in? Answer to that was, don't ask. Just don't ask. We burnt the thing before it got any worse. So, as you can see, nothing is ever simple here. And we were just about to add the bin calendar to our new system. Can I just say it was easier the year before because the council gave us a magnetic list and I just attached it to the fridge. That's one of those big white boxes, isn't it? Yes, dear, it is. Don't, don't worry about it. Cost saving meant that they sent nothing for this year, so digitally it was going to be simple enough. Famous last words. Not if the last time was anything to go by. Now, remember one of the principles for this great calendar move was reducing the number of calendars. But Google Calendar had us covered, didn't it? A secret weapon. The colour coding thing, you mean? Well, it certainly should have. In Google Calendar, you can change the colour of a single appointment on a calendar and leave the rest of the appointments the default colour. You know what colour the original calendar is because there's a very thin stripe of original colour at the side. But other than that, you can change it. Now, you're limited to 12 colours. But short of a sudden influx of extra bins, that should do. You got going with it. I did. I created a dedicated calendar for bins. God, we know how to live, don't we? Oh, <laughs> you've no idea. I added the first collection date for the first bin. Now, this wasn't as simple as you'd think. Because one bin goes weekly, that's the green bin. One bin goes every two weeks, that's the grey bin. The other two every three weeks, alternating blue and black. Simple. Not. In fact, it took both of us. It's great, isn't it? Two degrees, two postgrad degrees, and more technical qualifications than you can shake a stick at between us. And it still took us a while to sort out this seemingly simple task. We were going to need to be imaginative with the instructions for the recurring appointments. It didn't help that black wasn't an option for the appointments. It would have only complicated matters to have to use a different calendar colour for the black bin. Which was when you had an idea. You can't change an individual appointment to black. But you can assign black as the default colour for a calendar. So... If we assigned black to the bin calendar as a whole and then changed the colours of the other collections to green, grey and blue, respectively, we should have had what we needed. 
Now, once all the collections were on there, I shared it with you as read-only. Well, I had no desire to edit the thing. The idea of sharing it was only so that you knew when the real rubbish was going. Yes. The real rubbish for reference is the one that goes every two weeks in the grey bin. And all was well until disaster struck, after you'd gone to bed. Exhausted, as I recall. Despite us checking everything was working when we'd finished it, at some point between then and your bedtime, the colours had vanished. Back to the drawing board it was then. I checked everything on my end. All the appointments were black, the colour of the calendar. But on Mike's calendar, they were correct. I'm glad I was blissfully unaware of this. By process of elimination, I twigged the issue was that the shared calendar was read-only. Now, why that should make a difference when the colours were correct at Mike's end, I have no idea. But once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Arthur Conan Doyle there. The man wasn't wrong. So I log into Mike's account. You did what? Would you rather I'd got you up at 2am? Um, no. So, I changed the sharing to read-write. Problem solved, eventually. We are proud to announce we have a perfectly functioning, colour-coded, a bin calendar. All in a single calendar. Which in iCloud would need a minimum of four different calendars. So, another benefit of moving to Google Calendar. So, now we continue our series on Apple's operating systems with a look back at Sierra. You know, I don't even remember installing it. You did. We both did. When bits started dropping off the end. When apps critical to our workflow stopped working. As I recall, due to our stubborn insistence on completely ignoring the beast that was LCAP. Apps critical to our workflow. In your case, that means every app you've ever installed. Anyway, I digress. When did we install it? Well, I did a test install on the day of release, as usual. But my real install on the production Mac was alarmingly fast for me, 14th of October. I do recall that Sierra was announced at WWDC in June 2016 and then released three months later on 20th of September. So only three weeks before you risked it. Anyway, as usual, Apple Trumper did a whole bunch of new features and, as usual, I probably ignored most of them although some of them are actually quite useful. First and foremost was being able to use Siri on the Mac. And no, I haven't used Siri on the Mac. I have enough to do without white nursing you both on your Macs as well. Also added in Sierra was unlocking your Mac with your Apple Watch. Well, not having an Apple Watch at the time, I also didn't use that feature. Having said that, the other day when I rebooted the Mac, it asked me if I wanted to lock in using the watch. It didn't work, but I'm not sure if everything's actually set up right, so I'll try again sometime. I didn't bother on the iMac. I figured the thing's never not working, so what was the point? But it did come into its own with the new MacBook Air. During the initial setup, it offered to configure the Apple Watch to open it, so I thought, whoa, why not? It was a light day, and I was in the mood for some raucous laughter when it caused some major grief, as I fully expected. But it didn't. It worked flawlessly. So good, it actually rendered the Touch ID fingerprint thing a lot less significant than I thought it would be. Your problem could have been it doesn't work from a cold reboot. Its primary function is to unlock a Mac once you've locked it, but you've remained logged in. 
If you actually turn off the Mac, you'll need to log in with a password before the Apple Watch Unlock things becomes available. So definitely more use on a laptop for me, but only because my iMac seriously working all the time. I actually have processed three terabytes, yes, terabytes of video files over the last four days in the last week. So the poor thing never gets a rest. It, it's never turned off. No. Another feature that Apple added was the universal clipboard. Basically, you select some text or an image on one device, Mac, iPhone or iPad, select copy, go to another device where you signed in with the same Apple ID and paste. And the copied content is pasted. Very useful, but I must admit, I rarely ha actually have the need to use it in the real world, because if I'm creating something, I'm not constantly switching between devices. Have you ever used it? In a word, no. Mainly because I have an app for that. I've got an app called Copied, which works on the Mac and iOS, and it gives you a clipboard history locally, but it shares that local history across all devices, so it becomes a shared history. Um, it has a maximum of a thousand items, but it works perfectly. I have used it a few times, but I don't rely on it, by which I mean if I create something on the Mac with the intention I want to use it on iOS and its text, I tend to add it to Drafts. Drafts is an amazing app. Originally, it was only on iOS, but now it's in beta on the Mac. Now, there's a lot less automation options with it on the Mac, but the ability to create multiple blocks of text and have them be available on iOS automatically is perfect. Main use over the last few days while we were out and about was to copy a list of hashtags for Instagram posts. Without hashtags, what you post seems to vanish into a black hole on Instagram. And I was banging out this huge list of tags on the phone and it just takes far too long. To the point it would put me off bothering to post at all. So having those reusable blocks of hashtags for different situations makes it easy and creating them on the Mac to use them on iOS is perfect. So I don't really, I wouldn't have the need for that feature. Let's put it like that. Sierra was the first operating system that allowed you to rearrange everything that's on your Mac's menu bar. Not just the uh, icons for native Apple apps and utilities, but anything. Now, most of the icons on my menu bar are hidden through Bartender. Do you know, I'd completely forgotten that one. I use, I've used Bartender for so long, I didn't even try the built-in options. And when you say it allowed you to rearrange them, I presume it was just rearrange and not hide. Yeah, just rearrange, just move them different locations. Mm, no, I wouldn't because I'd use Bartender. When Bartender, on the, on the rare occasions, Bartender like isn't running. I'm freaked out looking at my Mac. <laughs> There's a million icons up there. It's terrifying. So, no, bartender all the way. I agree. I totally agree with you on that one. And I, I've got the same issue when you when bartender's not running. It's just full of icons and it's scary. Messages app got updates as well. They gave us larger emojis and quick reactions. Now, most of my texting is done on the phone. And my use of emojis is limited to a smiley, a saddie, and the poo icons. That pretty much sums up my life as well. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> Do you know if you've got a snazzy iPhone 10, uh, whatever, one of those things, they've released four new emojis this week. I didn't know that, no. The one that I can remember... 
because all of them are ludicrous, is a large giraffe. <laughs> Fair enough. Think of it as sort of apple playtime for three-year-olds. Can I mention them actually fixing some problems with software? Or would that degenerate into a rant? It would. Okay, move on. The Photos app was updated with smart search capabilities, face recognition and an automatic tool called Memories that creates highlights of events on your behalf, including photos and people and places. Unfortunately, I can't comment on this because I don't use photos. But similar to Facebook, sometimes I'm sure there are memories that I don't want reminding of. Do you know, I, I can wholeheartedly agree with that as well. Because that has happened to me and it'll come up and it'll say, you've got new memories and you're suckered in with it every time. And I open it and it's pictures of like me in the middle of woodwork or gardening or fences or some something hideous. But the other day it said, you have new memories. And just as I was about to dismiss it, I could see what one of the images was. And I thought, good grief, it's not actually worked the way it's supposed to, has it? And I opened it up and it was all the pictures from the Dunham Christmas Trail. And it was Ooh. lovely to see. Ooh. So if you're not taking pictures of the garbage I usually take pictures of, and they're actually real, then it does work. Cool. So I'll give that one a thumbs up. You're surprised, I know. Very. Another feature that was added was the ability to share notes with collaborators via iCloud. Yeah, right. That's that's what Notion's for, isn't it? Without the that, that's what ev anything else is for, but but not Apple Notes. Having said that, you know, it has much improved since um you got your first iPhone and tried putting a shopping list on it, and it took so long you grabbed a piece of paper and a pen instead. Oh yes, I remember that one. It's moved on since then. I remember that one. I think we should challenge Mike to use it for a week. What do the lovely MacBiters think? I can see his face and I'm getting I'm getting a very evil look. Yes, that can I take a screenshot and show them? No. <laughs> it's an audio podcast. Saved. Well, I'm getting the full Monty, put it like that. No, no, actually, no, 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 no. Don't think about that. Move on, move on. Be careful what you're saying. Like I said, it's an audio podcast. You'd be careful what you wish for. Yes, hmm. it's an audio podcast. I'll be okay. Thankfully. Yes. Sierra. Sierra introduced us to Apple Pay on the web. You used that, didn't you, to pay for your phone battery? I did. I figured if it didn't work, I still had that poor woman on the phone and it would give me another opportunity to rip her a new one. It only works in Safari, but it was a painless operation, so I would use it again. Syncing the desktop and documents folder with iCloud. Ah, now this is a good one. This is a feature that I do actually use. As I recall it, I suggested you turn it on. As I recall it, you insisted he did. That sounds more like it. I do store files on my desktop. Yes, I know I shouldn't. I tell others not to. Admittedly, that's on Windows, which doesn't sync the desktop to the cloud. But it does mean that anything stored on my desktop is available to me via my, my mobile devices and via a browser. So say I need something at work that I know is on my desktop. I can then access it um, through uh, through iCloud. Just log into iCloud and it's there. I do have to be careful, though, copying large files. I know we, we often have a tendency to drag things out, stick them on the desktop. Uh, if it's a large file, then it's going to try and upload that to the cloud. So 
if you're going to do it, don't store large files on your desktop. I also keep a minimal amount of data in my documents folder. I have a folder called documents local, and that's for large files, but most of my data is kept in the cloud. Sort of things I do keep in documents local are things like TV recordings and my virtual machines, which are several gigabytes each. Another feature that was added in Sierra was the ability to annotate photos in the Photos app, which is similar to what you can do with annotating attachments in Mail. And as I said, I've never used the Photos app, so I can't actually comment on this, but I can see a use for it, although I use Snagit or Preview to annotate my images. Well, that's our look back at OS X Sierra, and next time we'll be looking at High Sierra which is what I have installed on my Mac right now. So, on to good but gone. And today, it's an old favourite of mine, Circus Pony's Notebook. I was enchanted with it when I moved to a Mac back in 2006. The interface was the nearest digital implementation of a paper notebook I'd ever seen. With pages, sections, dividers, tabs, bookmarks... Paper types, stickies, post-its, templates. The indexing system was to die for. It was so extensive. And there was multiple tables of contents as well throughout your notebook. It had it all and I loved it. But back then, of course, there was no Evernote, Bear, Agenda, Notion, Simple Note. Your other option was pretty much OneNote or nothing. Now, I used OneNote on Windows. I've used it since it was an alpha. But the lack of a Mac version meant I was in the market for an alternative. Circus Pony's notebook ticked every box and it stayed that way. Multiple notebooks, multiple versions until about 2011, which was when cracks started appearing. Adding tables was the holy grail for some. I can't say it was for me, but it caused the developer problems. There was a promised new version, the final version as it turned out, and it shipped without this much lauded new table feature. And even then, it only shipped after huge delays. I seem to recall it was supposed to be being released at a Macworld at one particular January. And it missed that. And then when it did come out, it was only a few weeks later. And I thought, well, you might as well, you know, you paid for a booth at Macworld. You might as well have done it then anyway. Um, I had serious problems with the newly added sticky notes feature, but all the basic functionality was still there. Tables and other features were added eventually. But by then, an iPad version was being demanded, and that took an age. When it did arrive, it just wasn't great. You'd probably have been all right with three pages. I think one of my notebooks, my main notebook, had about three and a half to 4,000 pages by then, and it worked great on the Mac but I didn't rate my chances of synchronising it to iOS. Once I sensed that, I got nervous. You know that feeling when you suspect it's time to start looking for an alternative, just in case? I exported every Circus Ponies notebook file I had to a PDF. It, it worked. It wasn't perfect, but I can still, to this day, find anything I need from 2006 to 2012. It was, as I said, a fantastic implementation of a notebook, the nearest I've ever seen to a true digital version of a spiral-bound notebook. Infinitely flexible, you could reorganise the whole thing in seconds, and it just worked. To me, it defined what being a Mac user meant back in 2006. If it was still around today, 
I think it would still shape up well against all those newer notes, apps and services. All the ones we talked about, Evernote, OneNote, Bear, DevonThink, Notion, SimpleNote, because it provided something different, a physicality and an instantly understood metaphor. You never took to it, though. No, I think my problem was that I was changing machines too much. I had a laptop, I had a desktop, um, and it saved the files locally to the Mac because there was no cloud back then. So it, it caused friction, uh, too much messing around, making sure you had the, the latest version of the, the notebook you were working on. I just didn't take to it, like you say. Well, when the end finally came, the proverbial sure hit the air conditioning. There was pretty much a simple note left on an otherwise bereft of content website. Just saying you can't download it anymore. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, as time moved on, you also now can no longer install it on iOS because obviously it hasn't had the necessary updates. The developer seemed to be more than a little cheesed off with life in general. And Microsoft in particular, to be honest. There was a strange message left about Google taking over. And that generated so much chat, he had to come back and explain. And then he vanished completely. It was a very sad demise for a fantastic app. Now, thinking about it today, the nearest alternative on a Mac is still probably OneNote. But that's still not a patch on Circus Pony's notebook. On iOS, you've got a whole range of options with pencil support, of course. So it looks like the future is bright for notebook apps. Your biggest problem is going to be finding the one that works perfectly for you. Mm, I'm still looking. Aren't we all? So, the next Mac Bites After Hours is episode 13. Saturday, 9th of February, 9pm. 9 at 9. Lots of goodies is what we're calling this After Hours. Graham has promised a sneak peek at his good reader setup. Does he know he has? He does now. So do join us Saturday the 9th, 9pm. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. If you're feeling generous, you could always leave a review on iTunes for us to find. Now, while I remember, if you do leave an iTunes review and you're not leaving it in the UK store, get in touch and tell us so we can go and find it in the relevant store. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So I presume you heard all about the debacle with the show last week? The missing one you mean? That's the one. I got the blame. It couldn't have been you. It wasn't. You were asleep. Don't remind them of that. Anyway, why weren't you asleep? It's this new battery. I'm a new woman. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. I can last all night. Good. You can be the one to get up early in the morning to put the bins out then. Damn it. Hoisted by my own batard.